Hello and welcome to Secondhand Film Critics, your favorite source for mildly pretentious, semi-uneducated, and highly unqualified opinions on movies. I'm Noah, and I am here with... Kayla! This is just, it's not like anything crazy, it's just a little bonus episode. We interviewed the director of the film To the Stars, uh, her name is Martha Stevens, and the film is a 2020 release. I mean, it was, it premiered at Sundance in 2019, so that's pretty exciting. Not we, We're not getting many of those right now, so. It was supposed to be a theater release, and ended up being an on-demand release, so you can still screen it. Yeah. So if you listen to the interview and want to watch it, then go ahead and get it online. There are some like slight spoilers we might go into in the interview. I don't remember exactly everything we get into, <laughs> but um, yeah, slight so can... spoilers, but nothing that I feel like really affects you know what you're getting out of the film. Exactly, and it's not really like a film that there's much to spoil. Like there is like a couple. A couple of twists and turns, but it's not like a big thriller mystery that yeah, you're going to exactly. spoil the big reveal at the end. It's a good one, and it's just a nice, calming watch, I feel and like. I had a good time. you can watch, which we'll talk about a little bit in the interview, but you can watch either the color screening or the black and white screening. We right, recommend the black and white screening. Granted, that's right. also the only version that we watched. Who doesn't love a good black and white feature yeah. film? Not it's not used enough. I feel like in in these yeah. days, you know, you get the same story from both, obviously. So whatever floats your boat. But just a little bit of a quick like introduction before you get into the interview. Martha Stevens um, is an American film writer and director. She has a few other films out besides this one, like a few smaller films. Her first two feature films were Passenger Pigeons mm-hmm. and Pilgrim Song. And then she also has a film called Land Ho. Yeah, and I think uh, that screened at a couple um, film festivals when it came yeah, out. Yeah, the first two premiered at uh, South by Southwest, and then yeah. the Land Ho premiered at Sundance, which was the same with To the Stars, which is the one we're obviously talking about now. And there's I some think the... familiar people in To the Stars that you'll see yeah. when you watch it. Fan yeah. favorite, Tony Hale. Tony uh, Hale. Voice of Forky. <laughs> that's his uh that's his claim to fame now and the principal in love simon <laughs> right oh my gosh yes um kara hayward who is in yes. noah's favorite movie Moonrise my favorite Kingdom, movie favorite movie of all time some new faces as well got a great cast uh, it's a good cast for sure some d- definitely um, really good performances as well but this is the first film she directed that it was someone else's script. Yeah. And the script is actually, it was written in 1999. So it's definitely, it's it's a lot more interesting, or not a lot more interesting, but it's just a different film than maybe something that was written more recently. You get that kind of old-fashioned feeling while still having the more new perspective in yeah, terms of the exactly. filmmaking. We have a little bit of a summary here. It's not much, but it will give you a little bit of a feeling about what the film's about. Under small town scrutiny, a withdrawn farmer's daughter forges an intimate friendship with a worldly but reckless new girl in 1960s Oklahoma. It's a decent love log their... line, I guess. It was, it's decent. They love their adjectives in this one. Yeah, so um, it's basically, I mean, it's a buddy film. 
It's yeah. about these, coming of age. Yeah, great coming of age. We've got a good water scene, which is multiple water scenes crucial for a coming of age film, in my opinion. It's about two girls in high school who become friends. One is new to the town, and one is kind of um, sort of an outcast. More she's a like, worldly but reckless well no 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 yeah the new girl is the new girl is so we've got you know the quiet girl um who who's kind of the main lead and then we've got the girl that comes in who's unique and fun and and it's like it's a classic setup out of your your shell friend um, <laughs> <laughs> Those are the exact words that she so uses. So we've got a lot of friendship themes. We've yeah. got some parent relationship themes, some other 1960s themes, um, right. a little bit of boy drama, a little bit of school dance drama. We've oh, got man. some uh, LGBTQ themes that are in it. It's just like we've got we've got a lot going on. It's definitely a good time. So I would recommend you watch the film and then listen uh, either before or after to this upcoming interview but with director way, Martha Stevens. Either, either way, way. Even if you don't want to watch the film, it's fine. It's a good listen. She's, she, she's really fun. She's a really cool. Martha's really cool. She's awesome. Uh, she's very smart. She says some fun things. She's funny. She doesn't yeah. just talk about the film. She talks about, you know, movies and her love for storytelling. And Yeah, we get into it all. Yeah, so she's she's worth listening to even if you don't watch the movie, which you should. But it's yeah. fine if you don't, I guess. We won't hold it against yeah. you. What else are you honestly doing, though, right now? Like, there's really nothing. Uh, yeah, seriously. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you might as well listen to a cool female director who's yes. telling important stories and writing important stories and just, you know, living her best life. Without further ado, then, let's get into the interview with director Martha Stevens. Thanks for uh, coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So do you, are, are you in Winchester? Is that where you're from? Yeah, I am. Noah's in, uh, in yeah, he's in New Hampshire. Yeah. So we always record our episodes like virtually. But yeah, when, I mean, obviously now all our Winchester screenings are virtual screenings. Right. But right. yeah, I live in, in the area, so. Okay, cool. My brother lives in Richmond, so I'm a little familiar with Okay, yeah. I'm from the East Coast, too, originally, so. Right. Yeah, I saw that you were originally from West Virginia. I was born then, there. Okay. But I'm, I'm from Kentucky, but it's all kind of the same, like in that, <laughs> where Kentucky and West Virginia and Ohio all meet. It's just like right. straight up Rust Belt, Appalachia. Yeah, farmland. <laughs> Factories, farmland, poverty. Yeah, we have a lot of... um like farms around here like there's some city areas um because i'm a little bit south of winchester so we have like a lot of dairy farms that are just down the road from me and you you did grow up like in that area so how did that like change how you consumed media i'm much older than you guys so people i mean most people in my high school probably didn't even have the internet yet right <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, I went to Blockbuster and rented movies. Okay. And and then I went to like smaller mom and pop 
video rental places and got movies. So I was like mostly watching movies still on like VHS and stuff. Right. Did you guys have a movie theater? Yeah, we had a, like a Cinemark. So like okay. a 10 screen Cinemark. So you'd see, you know, whatever goes to a 10 screen Cinemark. Um, right. So to, to access like independent films or, you know, movies coming out of festivals, I'd have to go to Lexington, which is like two hours away. Yeah, well, that's kind of how it is around here, too. It's like, thankfully, the Alamo will screen kind of indie movies, but we usually don't get them until like four months after everyone else has already seen them or has screened them somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. But other than that, it's like every theater around here is 25 to 40 minutes away if you want to see, you know, anything that comes out, which is just small town life, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm still living in a situation where I, I have to drive 30 minutes to go to a theater that would have movies like that. So, like, I live in kind of a rural area in Washington State. That's different. <laughs> I guess most people kind of working in your field would live in, like, Los Angeles or New York or Toronto. Yep. Yeah, I don't, I haven't done that. I've never lived in any of those places. So then, like, so what was the thing that got you interested in like directing and storytelling then like what was the thing that spurred that uh watching movies as a kid I had three older brothers and they you know I remember you know watching something like Ed Wood um at a really young age and an impressionable age I think honestly I started out like Tim Burton was my access to 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 weird cinema to movies that sort of I felt a kinship to about misfits and um, they were super imaginative and yeah. So I remember I saw Beetlejuice in theaters three times. Like I made my dad take me three times and I was like four years old or something. So like that and Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. Those were like, I wanted to actually work in um, like puppeteering and animation and stuff at first, but then I, sort of lost that interest as like and ended up deciding just yeah like writing and directing was what I wanted to do and I think I figured that out like maybe my sophomore year of high school cool yeah Tim Burton is definitely he's one of my favorites and I know Kayla you like some of his movies like early yeah <laughs> I know that a lot of or at least right now the conversation around the film is definitely in the fact that you shot it in both black and white and color so maybe mm -hmm. can you go a little bit at least into the process of like what that was like having to shoot in both black and white and color at the same time? Sure. So we shot it digitally and you shoot it raw. And so everything's manipulated in post anyway, but it does change things like, you know, how you light a scene or your design or your costume design or whatever. So when I was talking to people, like interviewing folks, to to hire for some of the the key positions like our costume designer and um, our production designer Jonathan I had to <laughs> sweet talk them and then I had to be like oh and by the way we have to do these two versions and the reaction was like oh, okay I I know I we knew it was a big ask because you're basically asking them to do two jobs at right. the same time so I mean luckily. In this day and age, we have access to like our iPhones and we can take photos of stuff and then put it in a, you know, a black and white filter and kind of check to see, to make sure like when she was, uh, Kirsten was, our costumer was picking out costumes, 
that it looked good both ways before making decisions. The same thing with like looking at wallpaper. I mean, we really just tried to break up the black and white through textures and patterns and stuff on screen, as opposed to like focusing on gray scale and then make sure that all the color looked good. So. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. big fans of, of black and white. Movies. Yeah, and I definitely see that intention though, because in a lot of like the marketing and stuff, and I know on some of your social accounts, I've seen like the side by side shots where you see the color and then you swipe, and you can see the intention behind that and how it works the lighting and the colors and everything, and the shades of black and gray work both ways. So yeah. Definitely, like, I applaud you guys for that because it sounds like <laughs> Thank a you. really hard job. Less hard for me, honestly, and harder for the gaffer and cinematographer, a lot of the other folks, but right. they did a great job and I'm so appreciative that they kind of knocked it out of the park. Cause I, yeah. I think that the color version does look very intentional. It doesn't look like it's, uh, you know, side B. It, it looks great. Uh, one thing I really liked was that all your supporting characters all had like individual identities as well. Um, so I was curious about how you went in directing those characters to also have their own, like, intentional sideline stories. Um, I know the mother was a big one, um, but both of the, the fathers as well and the other kind of girls in the school system, too. Yeah, it's interesting. This is my first time working off of a screenplay I hadn't written. So the way I looked at it... Um, some of the characters, like the the mom, for instance, when I was talking to the writer, Shannon, she felt very on the page, just like this complete antagonist. <laughs> and just, there was nothing there that was likable. So it was really fun working with um, Jordana, the actress, to sort of figure out, okay, on the page, she says this awful thing, but what's really the meaning behind it? And like finding for ourselves a way to sort of find empathy, you know, for Francie, to find ways that, yes, this is like terrible, but maybe she is really actually coming from a good place, even though it's really misguided. So yeah, it's just like digging really deep. And also Shannon wrote the script like 20 years ago. So even for Shannon, she, um, that's a, that's a long time to not, I mean, really remember like maybe what she had in mind for characters' backstories and stuff like that. So we were able to kind of start all over, um, myself and Shannon and the actors. Let's see, with like the high school girls, I let them sometimes um, riff, like improvise a little bit. And I think that that, like for instance, Lauren that plays Rhonda, um, on the page she didn't really read as that comedic. Um, but I think she did a really good job like making Rhonda funny. Um, yeah. And same thing with Hattie. Hattie didn't really read comedic, but Sophie that played Hattie, like sort of, you know, they all have their own ideas, all the actors, and you just kind of engage with them and figure out like how you want it to play. I don't know. I don't know if I have like a trick or it's just conversations, just lots and lots and lots of conversations and really like trying to find a way to make the characters seem layered and nuanced and especially when you're working with a script that's like a very classic coming of age story with very classic like archetypes and stuff um you know like there's mean girls there's mean girls in like every high school movie but just finding a way to 
yes, it's like something we've seen before, but still sometimes those things we keep seeing because they are relatable and people like them. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I feel like every story at this point has been told. Mm-hmm. And maybe there are more coming of age. Like maybe we're seeing a retelling of the same coming of age stories more than other stories. But as I get older, the more I really love those stories. And I don't know if that's because I'm like looking back and reflecting <laughs> on my life or what. But I don't know. I like kind of crave them, even though I know how they, they end and that yeah like i don't know yeah and what's cool about this one too is it almost seems like a reflection of a reflection in that like you said it was written 20 years ago and so the script itself is reflecting on coming of age stories and then when you bring the script ahead 20 years it's like kind of taking that perspective and bringing it into the now so what was like that process too of like i mean you touched on a little but like was there any other challenges in adapting or using a script that was written uh, 20 years ago, like you said? It's interesting because some of the criticisms about the film that we're receiving are, oh, it's been there, I've uh, seen that before. And I guess I thought that we made it with, um, I thought enough self-awareness that it, that would come through, that we, we acknowledge that that's sort of, um, we're not trying to like reinvent the wheel, but um mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I, I was like, oh, this is like studio films that I watched as a kid, 60s era coming of age stories um, that I really just loved as a, as a girl. And I wanted to make one of those. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, it's super like sweet and earnest and maybe um, it's not, you know, edgy, um, but I, I don't know, like I, like I said, it's like a, like a warm blanket feeling of a movie that I wanted to make. And yeah. I think it's interesting that the my intent was like, oh, this thing that you think is tired, it's like, I love that old tired thing. And <laughs> I want to make my version of that old tired thing. So I don't know. Right. And it's a little refreshing too, because there's so much of our of movies that come out now are so much about subverting genre or subverting mm-hmm. narrative in certain ways. And I think that this film, like you said, is definitely almost a callback. And it's yeah. not trying to like subvert your expectations in like the ways of genre or the narrative. And like you like that almost feels fresher than something now that maybe would go in and be like, is this a comedy? Is this um like a more edgy coming of age tale. So I definitely yeah. feel that. Thanks. Yeah, I feel like, you know, 55 year old ladies, they like this movie. So <laughs> that's, my, that's my audience. So, but I also, I'm just really not, I've just not been very, I don't know what's happening to me. Maybe this is age. Um, but yeah, like what you're saying, movies that are um, trying to like push, push boundaries or there's just some sort of it's self-aware in a way that I don't like I guess sometimes so even though I'm saying our movie is self-aware it's not self-aware in a way that um it's trying to uh make you think it's like really profound or something you know so yeah I know even now too it's it's interesting that this was written um so long ago because I guess now is when is sort of this boom of like queer coming of age stories. Um, not that they haven't been coming out for years, but 
especially right now, it's like, you know, we have Call Me By Your Name and Moonlight and all these things that are kind of coming out. And it's like, this one was, it feels kind of before the time, but also it's a period piece. So it's like, that makes it even more interesting, in my opinion, that it's like, was written so long ago, but also was set in a time that's not uh, sort of like we see presently in queer stories. Yeah, and on, I mean, and honestly, when when we played the movie at Sundance, I, I mean, I just thought it was a movie about girls, you know, yeah. and I wasn't really thinking, oh, it's a queer coming of age movie, or I was just thought it was like, it's a coming of age movie. Someone at Sundance said, do you re- realize that they're, we're trying to get away from um, queer stories where like the character kills themselves? And I was like, wow, I didn't even think of this as that because I always thought that Maggie um, got away. Like it read so clearly to me on in, yeah. on the page that it was like a uh, um it's like kind of like a, a haunting ending, but it's still hopeful um because Iris says as much she thinks she's gone, and so I don't know, I always thought Maggie was like this cool sort of almost like folk hero character or like like in a western when the guy rides off into the sunset, you know <laughs> so i I thought like we were like making Maggie really interesting and like there it would be a conversation like where did she go after this so it was really eye-opening to realize like everyone thought I killed this like lovely character (laughs) off and I was like oh shit I'm so sorry that's not how I interpreted it at all um so yeah like this has been it's been interesting sort of being blind to how this would be this movie would be perceived by people in the LGBTQ community. Interesting. I definitely interpreted it in that she got away and more too that the the more closed-minded people like in the community would just assume that she did kill herself because that's what their first thought would be. Right. And the more subversion is that um, she did get away but they just couldn't even like consider that to be a possibility. Right. Yeah. For me, me, I did. I, but I can't see though why it might be misconstrued, but I, at least personally, I definitely felt that like what you were going for more. Well, it's interesting because even my, some of the producers were like, maybe we should film, you know, like her at a bus terminal or something. And I was like, no, no, no. Like (laughs) open endings are so much more interesting. And so now I realize people want happy endings. Open endings are not necessarily um what people want so it's it's been a good learning experience for sure but you know we played at a lot of queer film festivals and it did seem to really resonate with older audience members and mm-hmm. i think it's because their experience was maybe more similar to to maggie's experience and so it hit home in a way so you watch a lot of movies because I've looked at your letterbox and stuff. Were there any movies specifically that you were like watching leading up to making this that you were like, whether it was, you know, period pieces or similar sort of storylines? Yeah, my letterbox is probably, you're probably like, what is she doing? 
I'm often watching movies for research because like I'll, I'll be pitching on something and I'll be pitching on like some YA book. So then I'm like looking at all these YA movies or, or whatever. So you'll kind of see like maybe sometimes like what what I'm pitching on based on the cluster yeah. of movies I'm watching. For this one, most of the, we were looking at stuff mostly for, I would say like visual inspiration. Let's see, we were looking at old um, like Douglas Sirk movies. We were looking at, um, not not for the color, but for, for just like the framing. Um, you know, Orson Welles, we were looking at uh, Billy Kazan. We also were looking at, you know, some newer movies like Capote, newer as in, you know, 10 years new, uh, it's still 10 years old or whatever, but just because of like the setting, it's like set out in Kansas, I think. Yeah, I don't know, we're kind of all over the place. There wasn't like some guiding film because, I mean, I, I've talked a lot about how much like I love The Last Picture Show and beyond like the the black and white, it visually doesn't look anything like the last picture show um, because we were using a lot of like modern tools and stuff that last picture show didn't. I definitely, I love the, the framing of this film and how a lot of the shots are very like wide and open and so that you can kind of take in the setting, especially a lot of times if I remember you come back to the shot of on the road with the car kind of mm-hmm. And it definitely, it reminded me, if I go a little um, more recent, of stuff like Coen Brothers, like um, the cinematography and like A Serious Man, where it's very flat and the camera is very steady. And I really, like, and I definitely, that was one thing I really enjoyed about it, was just looking at the, the language of the film and the visual language. Yeah, I mean, I think that my my DP, um, Andrew Reed, we've been working together since we were in film school. So we almost like, we really understand and know each other's tastes. So when we're shot listing, I'm sure it's like, you know, uh, 16 years of talking about movies and stuff that, you know, there's like a lot there that we're influenced by that's probably like subconscious, you know. What we really felt like we could bring to the story, I think, was a visually compelling uh, language. That's what we were hoping, um, to really put you there and make it have almost like a sense memory feeling through the way it was shot and the way that we graded it. Hopefully it Hopefully it works. What are um, some, are you, are you working on anything right now? Are you looking, I mean, I'm sure you're always looking at future works and future, you know, stories that you can make. Um, Is there anything you're working on right now while you're in like quarantine, social distancing? Yeah, I'm working on um, a TV show uh, concept, kind of getting together the sort of pitch, like the Bible um, to take out one one of these days. Um, it's like a set in the 30s and it's oh, a comedy. Cool. So my my writing style is very different than to the stars. Um, right. Yeah, it's much more uh, like a fun farce, I would say. It's not a serious melodrama. And then, yeah, I'm working on like like pitching on projects and stuff that are sent over to me, like a, like a YA book right now. So cool. yeah, love triangle, we'll see. <laughs> that's fun yeah wait we love a good love triangle very dramatic yes 
<laughs> I will say uh, I love Tony Hale. He's like one of my favorite people in, in the world. Um, and I thought it was pretty funny that I feel like he's someone that's normally like typecast and he plays this very um, usually like awkward anxiety filled character. Like obviously in this he's so different from other characters that he played and I thought that I mean his character wasn't funny but I thought it was funny in a way because I was like oh my gosh his character is like a jerk and at least in the beginning of the movie and you're like oh wow yeah I wasn't expecting Tony Hale to be like this it's a risk honestly to I just think he's a really strong actor and he can do anything yeah um he just hasn't really had the chance to but yeah, that is, you know, when you're putting someone that funny on the screen, you're risking things being unintentionally funny when they're not, because yeah. you're just expecting it to be funny. Um, right. But I think Tony, I think he did a good job. I think for the most part, people bought bought yeah. him as that guy. Um, yeah. Especially at I the mean, end, it's so heartbreaking. Yeah, and that's an interesting scene because that was... Um, that was supposed to be the mom. That was supposed to oh. be, in the script, it was um, Maggie's mom that shows up. Okay. And we had to shoot the pond stuff like three months after we shot the rest of the, the film because it was too cold to shoot. Mm. So we couldn't get Mullen back um, for that scene. So I was like, let's rewrite it for, for Gerald, the dad. And I was like, and I think that would actually be stronger yeah um and it really helps his arc so yeah yeah i agree yeah i think it was for the best but yeah sometimes those things happen where you have to make changes and you think it's like the end of the world but it turns out to be even better so right yeah yeah i liked his character arc a lot i loved Mm -hmm. all the the pond scenes i think those are my favorite scenes all the ones with the pond (laughs) we had to shoot those in three days and so many of the scenes, we had these like really great shot lists and we had these great plans of how we were going to shoot them. And then some of them, when we were running out of time, we just had to like throw it away and, and shoot crazy. basic coverage. And it, it broke, broke my heart. Like scene where Maggie and, uh, takes all the kids to the pond and Iris freaks out. Right. The way we were going to shoot that was so good, but we didn't, we didn't get to, and we had to like throw our shot list out and just shoot it all handheld and that wasn't really the plan right. but only i know you know <laughs> thank you coming on for coming on and uh doing this this is great and i'm glad that in this crazy time like we're still getting to see like films or smaller films get the attention they deserve through like virtual screenings if you want to call them that or yeah i have no idea i hope people are watching the movie i don't know but people have access to it so right yeah that's awesome bye Bye. well thanks for tuning in to this episode and that awesome interview with martha who is so cool we just keep she having is. cool directors on. I'm a big fan of all these cool I, directors. I love cool directors. It's so fun. And I love so, people yeah. that are um, a lot smarter than me. <laughs> 
and right. have more way better movie knowledge than we do so they're probably much yeah. better to listen to than our ramble is about they're definitely not secondhand if no yeah sense. they're firsthand <laughs> they're firsthand, firsthand film filmmakers critics. the spin-off next week we'll be having another fun episode wow which... episode after episode after episode 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 and we are, are going to be covering another 2020 release, which is one of Kayla's most anticipated releases. Yeah, I year. don't want to hype it up too much because, like, you know, you want it to be not disappointing. But I am right. excited. I will say the first time I watched the trailer, I may have cried. What's the movie then? Scoob! Exclamation S- point! Scoob! We will be reviewing and talking about Scoob and maybe some other Fun Scooby-Doo things. We'll get into lots of Scooby-Doo talk. Mm, yes. It's going to be great. So good. And I'll bring out my um, Scooby stuffed animal and have him with me on my desk during right. the recording. I'm just excited to do an episode that seems a little more quote-unquote normal. You know, even if we're watching it in our home. Yeah. It's still exciting. It's a 2020 big budget studio release. Be on the lookout for that next Monday on May 18th. Yeah, you can follow us on social media where we'll post updates and stuff um, at Secondhand Film Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Secondhand Film Film on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's all, folks. So that's that's all, folks. Looney Tunes quote. Until next time, I'm Kayla. And I'm Noah. And we're your your secondhand secondhand film film critics. critics.